Welcome to episode two of PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Patricia McGaffigan, vice president of safety programs at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, about communicating with patients and families during a pandemic. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And now on to my conversation with Patricia McGaffigan. Hello, this is Jay Kumar of uh, PSQH, and I'm joined today by Patricia McGaffigan. She's Vice President of Safety Programs for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Jay, and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Well, glad to have you, and uh, wanted to talk today about educating and communicating with patients and families. Obviously, it's a tough time, um, a lot's going on, but you know, what are some, uh, what are some tips uh, you know, for sort of facilities and sort of how they can communicate with patients and families who are receiving or needing care during this time. Sure. I'm happy to uh, break that down and uh, give you some perspective on, first of all, the various lenses that I wear as I answer this question. They're a little bit unique. I certainly, as you said, have a perspective through my role as a safety leader at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I do sit on a board quality committee for an ambulatory care system. Uh, Certainly, uh, I'm a patient like many who are listening today, a family caregiver who's recently been heavily tested by some of the challenges of care during the COVID-19 pandemic. And additionally, I have a somewhat unique role as a spouse and mother of people who we might refer to as the last responders and who run a small family-owned funeral business. So the pandemic, as I think we we know, Jay, has pressure tested us in ways that we never would have dreamed imaginable just a few months ago. It certainly required us to move uh, through the segue from conventional care to contingency care um, and to crisis modes of care. And there have been a lot of challenges in healthcare delivery organizations with respect to adapting, scaling, and resourcing their technical and clinical operations as their greatest priority. Uh, They're focused in on procurement of technical and human resources, building infrastructure, physical capacity, and allocation of resources. And we see an abundance of planning and communications around that. At the same time, somewhere in all of this are the communications that are so essential for patients and families. And we are seeing the communications come from both healthcare delivery organizations and clearly through the media, where uh, it's pretty tough to turn on a television or a radio or scan your social media without receiving information about COVID. So when we think about how healthcare delivery organizations are responding and how well they are communicating in the era of COVID, I think it's really important to recognize that what our patients and family members are hearing and absorbing and relating to from the perspective of communications from healthcare delivery organizations is almost impossible to cleanly differentiate and distinguish from what they hear, absorb, and relate to from the media and other sources of information, which may not be um, unbiased, uh, they may not be evidence-based, 
or accurate and appropriate to the unique needs of patients and families. So in all of these playbooks that we've actually got out there for how organizations can respond in scaling up to a mode of crisis standards of care, one of the things that I think is really interesting, Jay, is that we don't really have playbooks for how we scale and communicate right. the provision of information with patients and families and the community about their care. So I have a sense that what we're doing in the, it, with respect to communications is generally lagging the communications that have been going on that have been essential for establishing the infrastructure and operations of our healthcare system amid the pandemic itself. And you mentioned the media uh, message as well. Like, what you know? What's your take on sort of? Obviously, there's been a lot of you know public service announcements and things like that. Trying to you know talk about social distancing and all the things that people need to do. Um, and you mentioned sort of other narratives sort of coming in there. Do you? How do you feel that's really uh, you know sort of affected patients and families as they get these messages? I think, Jay, that's had a direct impact on patients and families. Uh, it's uh, for the major way that we communicate right now, which is often through electronic communications, uh, televisions, uh, uh, briefing sessions, and other things. Uh, we have seen a range of communications that are sometimes consistent. They may not be consistent. And I think the interpretation that patients and families, the community has, can be heavily influenced by what they see and hear and believe to be true. And quite frankly, I think a lot of where communications are coming from and being received and where many are sourcing their information from is from the media. Although I do believe that our healthcare organizations, our delivery organizations, have really invested a lot of time and energy into making sure that what they present to patients and families is readily available and accurate and are doing their job not only to be able to uh, push uh, data out to people, but to pull people in and keep them engaged in important communications about their care. Well, can you take us through some specific types of communications that are being used uh, in both inpatient or ambulatory settings and and sort of, you know, where do you see opportunities for improvement? The areas where um, communications are really uh, coming from are, are the general communications of healthcare delivery organizations. And those are the types of communications, Jay, that we see on websites. They're often tied to uh, the typical COVID-19 advisories and the implications for patients and families. And they're providing foundational information on COVID, guidance on what to do if you or someone you know suspects they may have COVID, how to seek testing, uh, what you can do if you need care during the pandemic, and also measures that the organizations are taking to reduce the spread of COVID. Uh, so that's a little bit of a profile of the high-level communications that people are generally seeing from healthcare organizations. And I'll dive on into some of the ambulatory and inpatient perspectives uh, in just a moment. But I did want to note 
that the communications, and by the way, they certainly include restrictions on visitation and enclosures of primary care and ambulatory practices, mm -hmm. uh, but much of the communications uh, that will need to be uh, addressed and evaluated will be evolving in almost a real-time nature as we go through this first acute phase of the crisis and now as we get closer to conversations about reopenings. And I think we're going to need to anticipate that regardless of whether patients or families have an inpatient or outpatient experience, the information will be conveyed perhaps at different times in the healthcare system than it will be in the general community as the, uh, as the environment opens more broadly here. And we'll also have to, uh, I think, deal with a situation where patients and family members will still have some restrictions and limitations on how they can be engaged in their care uh, while other parts of society are opening on up. And another thing that I think is also from a general level, Jay, going to be really important is following and shaping guidance for the clinical trials that may be available to patients. This morning, I actually checked clinicaltrials.gov and I found about 800 studies around the world that are COVID related. So the implications for opening up this research and what it means for patients and families and for healthcare delivery organizations and researchers is quite expansive. So many of the communications that we're providing, again, are, are through uh, the means, the mechanisms of the website. Some of this information is being pushed out to patients in emails and phone conversations with text. Uh, but we also have a real large segment of our society that doesn't have access to care and access to these forms of technology. So again, at a general level, We've got opportunities um, to re challenges and opportunities to think about with respect to making sure that these communications are broadly disseminated, that they are addressing healthcare literacy and also needs for translations into multiple languages. And I don't quite have a good feel yet, to be very honest with you, about how we're doing on this front, uh, particularly with things like getting mailings out to people who don't have electronic access to information. And I sense that that is going to be a very important area for continued evaluation and improvement. I also have a sense that as these days and the weeks and the months go by, Jay, that whatever emerges as our new normal, which I really think I've heard people express this as the now normal world, will mean that we're going to want learn an awful lot about what's working with communications and how they can evolve and how we can continue to address what matters most so patients and families get the best care possible. Right now, I think the communications are generally on a communication to basis. We are communicating to patients and families. And I sense we will be moving more markedly into a communications environment and realm where patients and families will be expecting the healthcare delivery organizations to communicate with them. So again, at a high level, 
I have a sense that that will be a very important area, an opportunity to monitor and to improve. Now I can take you through some of the perspectives that I have that are specific to communicating with patients and families in ambulatory and inpatient settings, Jay. And perhaps I'll start out with a little bit of perspective on the ambulatory world. And I'm starting here because this is actually where most of us are at with respect to our needs for healthcare. Uh, there are a large number of people that typically seek preventative care or who are managed on an outpatient basis. And in the last several weeks, I've actually had a sizable amount of interaction with this aspect of care and caring during the era of COVID-19. So I have some perspectives that I think might be helpful to share with the audience uh, from the ambulatory and outpatient front. I wanted to uh, start off, and this is, I'm starting at this point because I had this experience where we had a family member who we desperately were trying to get outpatient care for in the recent weeks uh, as we started to see states and outpatient practices shut down. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to be able to plan for and discern whether or not a family member or a loved one needs to be seen in the in emergency department because ultimately right now that is the only place that patients can be seen. And ultimately we are also preventing and understandably right. preventing uh, family members and others from being with the patients uh, in that setting. And while the experience of being in the emergency department is always anxiety provoking, I think it's especially important for us to understand how dehumanizing it can actually be despite the best efforts of the care team, just by virtue of wearing a mask. And if we have patients, for example, who are hard of hearing, it may be even more difficult to communicate with them with this artificial so-called sound barrier that is masking uh, their voice and also hiding the expressions uh, that are so important for sharing as we are interfacing with our healthcare providers. In the emergency department, uh, again, because I've had this recent experience, communications with loved ones of patients who are in the department are typically by cell or home phones. And uh, to be clear and, and understandably, where under certain conditions, normal conditions, pre-COVID conditions, we might be able to reach out and call the emergency department for updates if we're not able to be with our loved ones. It's pretty tough for people to get the phone right now, to the phone right now to be able to provide updates on family members. Uh, literally, uh, we are, as family members, uh, prevented from even walking in the doors of an emergency department and in many cases being told to go home or wait in the car. And that waiting can be interminable. And this is where a lot of the emotions, I think, become exacerbated with uh, loved ones because dropping that patient off at the emergency room door is, is something that happens 
within seconds. Uh, and there may not even be the opportunity to look a loved one in the eye and to be able to say, I'm going to do the best I can to be able to ensure you get the best care possible and to be able to look into the eyes of someone and say, I want you to know how much I love you and care for you. And those are. And it's, it's got to be tough for, you know, I'm just thinking actually personally, like, you know, my mother's elderly and, uh, you know, not able to communicate as well as she used to. So, you know, if you're just dropping her off, you know, maybe not able to explain the problem as well as she could, then that's, that presents other issues. It, it certainly does, Jay. That was my experience uh, <laughs> with being told, uh, as I started to say, um, my family member is hard of hearing. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I knew that their electronic health record was not fully integrated because they had been hospitalized in this facility uh, months before. And we realized how much data was missing from the electronic health record. Uh, the, the sense of urgency that I personally had to be there and to fill in the gaps uh, was, was so heightened. And yet there's almost this total loss of control that uh, we experience. And I can remember uh, sitting in the car and uh, they told me I could go home. And I said, I'm not leaving this parking lot. I'm, I'm going to stay parked right outside the doors of the emergency department. And uh, about 30 minutes in, I got my first phone call um, asking for information uh, to kind of <laughs> fill out my dad's um, you know, health history and circumstances, as you noted uh, yourself just a few moments ago. And over the six or so hours that I was sitting there, we had a couple of additional phone calls that were lifelines for me uh, to be able to understand what was happening uh, with my family member. And uh, that, that was, uh, again, um, such a feeling for someone like you or I who were very um, experienced in healthcare to suddenly have those normal expectations and channels be cut off. Uh, and yeah. it's easy to get mad about things like that, but it's also important to know that those restrictions on being there are for everyone's own good. One of the other really interesting aspects, Jay, that I found in this process was, and I hadn't really thought about this at all, I knew, I knew that I couldn't be there, but I didn't think about what would happen when my family member was actually discharged. That's, that's an incredibly surreal moment because the discharge process that I experienced was actually a parking lot discharge. Uh, the oh. family member was rolled out in a wheelchair. Uh, the nurse was wearing a mask and gloves. Uh, we stood, uh, we were physically distanced by at least six feet while they were verbally sharing discharge instructions uh, with me. And also um, the, the actual process of signing the discharge form was an interesting experience as well. So uh, that, that whole emergency experience I thought would be interesting for some of our listeners to hear about uh, because there are things that we don't anticipate that are very real and that will probably remain with us uh, for quite some time. No, I yeah, and I would think, um, sorry, I would think that, you know, facilities 
don't really have any experience in, in something like this. I mean, obviously there's been, you know, you've got communications during flu season. There's other, you know, uh, ailments that may come up that you need to alert your, you know, your patients about, but this is something entirely different. That it is. Uh, it's the, it was the first time I've ever been in the parking lot of a hospital that I've been to for decades with family members where the parking lot was effectively empty. Uh, and that in and of itself is a very like visual um, reminder. Um, it's, a, it's a visual grounding point for how different life is in the era of COVID, Jay. Now I can move on to some thoughts about the ambulatory and outpatient perspective and how communications are um, generally occurring and some thoughts I have about communications in that realm. Uh, certainly receiving and coordinating care is uh, can be complex and burdensome and the communication channels now more than ever are so important and yet uh, in many cases, so fractionated uh, and confusing for patients and families as we have restrictions that remain on our access to ambulatory and outpatient practices and services. And so, as you know, and as our listeners know, the world of telemedicine becomes ever more important. And we hear so much about telemedicine that we often forget that, that a large percent of healthcare practices are tele-naive. They don't have mm -hmm. the experience uh, with telemedicine services. They don't have an understanding of what they're about. They don't have the infrastructure that is needed. And they don't have the processes built into place for how to communicate with and to execute on any type of televisit in this era of COVID-19. Uh, we've effectively um, created this perception with the public that the switch is now flipped and that we can get our services through this tele-avenue. Uh, and the reality is uh, that this can also be very, very challenging. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important to appreciate uh, for our listeners is that there are a number of terms that are actually used interchangeably when we think about telemedicine. We hear about uh, tele televisits, telecare, telemonitoring, telehealth. And so the whole alignment of telelexicon is really important for us to think about, not just from an individual practice standpoint, but I think across healthcare in and of itself, because those words may mean something to patients and families, and they may be very, very different for the practices that are planning to deliver, preparing to deliver, or are delivering care. Um, as an example, with one of my family members, uh, primary care um, providers, when I was expecting to arrange for uh, what was what I would call a telecare service. There was an acute need, an acute problem for a chronic condition uh, of a family member. 
um, the visit that was actually set up was uh, a telehealth visit, which was really just the process of entering my family member into the system. And it was a really deeply disappointing experience for, for, our, for our family because we actually thought that it would be very focused on a specific care problem uh, that had um, occurred and needed to be addressed and followed up on from that emergency department visit that I shared with you before. Providing instructions for what to expect, um, what the nature of the visits are with patients and families is so important so that we are on the same page and we are aligned and we can move together as a coordinated unit where the pa patient and family are really still at the heartbeat and the center of everything that is happening. Um, sometimes what I, I think I, I saw and what many others have reported that they see is you're going to get a link before this visit, so click on it, and then we'll be connected. And the reality is that um, that isn't always true. As, as you know, getting uh, set up on platforms and getting uh, proficient with platforms for healthcare professionals and, and certainly for patients and families can be very, very challenging. So one of the things that I think we can think about from an improvement perspective is when those appointments are being established to review the instructions during that phone conversation to follow up with email communications about that visit and to specify what will be required for the visit itself because many people and especially some of our elder population who are not proficient with technology will really need to have someone there to help these visits actually happen. Uh, so that's one uh, vantage point that I think I can bring to this. And uh, the other thing that is also important is really thinking about the communications during the visit itself. Um, I had a televisit last week uh, with one of my specialists and one of the things I had to do in advance was upload photos of my back. This was for a dermatology visit. So in advance, those photos were taken by my husband. Um, they were vitally important in the course of the visit that I had with my dermatologist um, virtually. And my care plan uh, was um, altered as a result of having that information and the preparation of that information at hand for the, uh, for the dermatologist to review. And one of the things that was so special about that visit with me, Jay, and this contrasts to two other televisits that I've had with family members is the, the real purpose and intentionality of my physician maintaining eye contact with me with great sensitivity uh, and, and perhaps even more sensitivity that would happen during an in-person visit. And I think it's important for those who are providing teleservices of any kind to really be present in the moment and to recognize that patients and families can see if you're distracted or if you're multitasking, even though you're not in the same room. Uh, it's, it's really um, very, very apparent. Uh, but that, that was, uh, for me, something that made me feel much more connected with my physician and made 
my family and I feel much more disconnected in the visits that occurred with my family member. That's, that's interesting, just because I, I take my mother to a lot of her appointments now. And, um, you know, you notice when your physician is either looking something up or whatever, but talk, still talking to um, her, but but doing something else at the same time, it's related to her, but it's still kind of, she, you know, sometimes it's a little off-putting, I think, for her just that he's not, you know, like you said, making direct eye contact. So that, that was interesting that you mentioned that. Right. I think that distances us even yeah. further and really com- creates a compelling need for recognizing that our verbal and nonverbal communications are so vitally important, perhaps more important than ever when we provide care for patients and families through this platform. I mentioned a little bit earlier about um, medical records um, and providing information uh, for patients and families uh, who need visits. And this this actually applies to both inpatient and outpatient care um, because these are critical communications that are essential for providing the right care and the safest of care. Even within the same organization, uh, there could be multiple electronic health record systems that are in use. And the ability to kind of scan those records and mine those records is especially complex right now. So recognizing that there may not be full and updated information on the patient and the family is important. Uh, And uh, asking and clarifying questions about history Uh, and taking shortcuts on that is probably not ideal because in many cases, the patient and family member can fill you in on gaps that may not actually be present when someone is looking at the electronic medical record from a care provider standpoint, but could be critical determinants in the care that the patient needs as well. And then one other tip uh, that uh, we kind of alluded to a little bit earlier from the perspective of um, an elder is also recognizing if the patient has limited physical capacity or has any sensory or cognitive deficits. So in my family members' two visits, I had to use the, the cell phone and direct the cell phone to areas of my family member's body that they could never possibly oh, yeah. have reached if I had not been there. That's interesting. Um, so how can organizations prepare patients and families in the event that they actually need care? So I think one of the things that uh, can is really helpful in terms of understanding what happens when patients and families need care and preparing them for care is to really think about and put ourselves in the shoes of uh, patients and family members, uh, preparing for the potential Um, need for care is absolutely vital. And this is one area where I really would love to see our communications um, be elevated um, and and more front and center um, and encouraging patients and families to take care of. Um, So much of the preparation conversations, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, have been focused on building the infrastructure and communications within the system itself. And we've also heard far less about how patients and family members 
can need to and ideally can prepare. And setting those expectations is, is really important at this time. There are a number of um, resources that are out there that can help patients and family members uh, prepare. They may be available on the websites of the healthcare delivery organizations that we're referring to today. They may also be uh, especially valuable on specialty disease or illness uh, websites. For example, for the American Lung Association, uh, there's there's somewhat customized uh, information and guidance on preparing for care if it's needed, uh, and that is something that I think is, is particularly important for us to think about is where to go for that information. Uh, and as we work with our own family members and from a healthcare communications perspective or guiding people, uh, those other perspectives, not just the general preparation, but the specialty preparation that might be essential and really helpful is also important. Now, last week, actually, this is a timely question, Jay, because last week we had National Health Decisions Day, and uh, that that day is a day in which uh, we are encouraging um, our public to begin to think about how to prepare for some of their care needs uh, and express their preferences in advance of being in an emergent situation and not having clear understanding and communications amongst family members. Uh, one of the organizations that I think is really helpful in this regard is Prepare for Your Care. Uh, they actually have a prepare program uh, it's an online resource where people can learn about how to prepare for care and also medical decision making. They have English and Spanish translations and guides and resources, and they really focus on three key areas, Jay. The first is preparing a hospital go bag. Um, the go bag, um, in a very quick um, nutshell, is uh, a resource bag that includes relevant documents and information, copies of insurance cards, medication lists, healthcare proxies, um, and reminds people to ensure that they have extra things that they might need. If they wear hearing aids, for example, extra batteries, their cell phones, their cell phone chargers. And one of the things that I think is also important to clarify with our care providers is whether or not patients should be taking any of their home technologies like glucometers or BiPAP machines in the event that they may be admitted uh, to the hospital and need those resources. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think, a, a real important uh, guidepost. And, and I, as someone who's really experienced in healthcare and is kind of nerdy about this kind of stuff, found that there were areas where I could have been more prepared over the last few weeks. The second area in this PREPARE program is choosing your medical decision maker, someone who can speak for you um, if need be. And the third area is the uh, realm of sharing wishes and documenting preferences for care with an advanced directive. Uh, so these resources are available on prepareforyourcare.org website. And additionally, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has our own program, the Conversation Project, which is an engagement campaign 
that helps patients and families prepare for um, the conversations that they need to have to help shape advanced directives and decision-making. What's the best way for uh, organizations to reach patients and families? Uh, The best way for reaching patients and families, and we can talk about this on a general level, Jay, and we can also speak to this, um, you know, as patients and families are engaged in the system in which they're receiving care. Um, Happy to have you clarify which angle you'd like for me to go down. Um, Let's start with sort of the the general view and then drill down a little. Okay. So from a general perspective, I think um, organizations really have to have clear pathways and protocols for how to reach out to and communicate with patients and families. Um, We talked about some of the things that can be helpful for people to think about bringing if they are going into a care setting that will help keep them connected and will help um, activate the right types of communications One of the things that I believe uh, is a practice that organizations may want to evaluate if they haven't already is to think about what happens at changes of shifts and transitions in care uh, and ensuring that those transitions in care um, shift changes are opportunities for quick huddles uh, to be able to check in on Um, where, when, and how communications are being shared uh, with patients and families if they happen to be um, in an inpatient setting. And also on an associated front, uh, and I've I've had this experience with organizations, gone are the days when hospitals can say, if you can't prove that you're the next of kin or you're the healthcare proxy, we can't give you information over the phone until you come see us. So one of the other ways that uh, healthcare delivery organizations can prepare for communications with patients and families is to examine some of their own protocols and uh, rules around communications. Um, In some cases we've heard Patients and families be told, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, we understand that our care teams are stretched thin, and this is an incredibly hard message um, for patients and families to hear. So that extra attention to compassion and maybe reallocating organizational resources that are dedicated to providing patient and family communications is essential. And this is also especially important for organizations to think about from a, a language standpoint and ensuring that they have translators uh, that are available as well. How often should hospitals communicate with patients and families, especially during this time? How, how much is too much? I would say, Jay, that the question of how often hospitals should communicate with patients and families during this time is it depends. Um, And as much as possible, we should understand what matters to patients and family members. It may not necessarily be the frequency, but it certainly will always be about the quality of the communications experience. So having you know special understanding of what works, and we, we know from our healthcare experience that certain families and patients 
prefer certain types of communication. So frequency may actually be the least important of what happens with communications, although I do believe there should be a general pace uh, where there is no less than uh, one or two communications a day, for example. Uh, there are very important um, family, patient and family specific uh, communications that are important to be sensitive to. Um, and again, the channels through which those communications are happening are especially important. Sometimes what I think we forget, excuse me, sometimes what I think we forget, Jay, um, when we're in situations like this is, how does the system look at their, their portfolio of communications? So we may get lots of communications as patients and family members that are about annual reports or requests for annual giving campaigns or updates about mergers and other things. We also get bills and reminders to pay bills. Um, and I think it's a really important time for our healthcare delivery system to evaluate what matters most to patients and to not be tone deaf about uh, what um, is perhaps right to advance in terms of communications or to really kind of uh, pause on for a moment. So we see millions of people who have lost their jobs in recent weeks and um, receiving requests for annual giving campaigns yeah. uh, may not be the kind of communication uh, that is most relevant for patients and family members. Uh, regardless, um, you know, being able to communicate uh, with patients who are in the healthcare system or and their families is something that uh, can can happen. Um, it's not necessarily limited uh, to people who are at the point of care at the bedside of the patient, because if we think about the communication system for patients and families, we've got case managers and chaplain services nutrition, social services, think about patient relations. I mentioned translators, um, occupational and physical therapy. Um, those are some of the, the examples of the neurons that constitute the central nervous system of the patient experience. And these are the experiences and communications that we are largely missing out on or a bit more challenging uh, to um, to arrange and construct, yet they're essential for engagement um, and hope and support and love and um, pathways to better and kinder care for patients and family members. And this is so important to think about, too, because we're in the midst of a pandemic that is effectively sanitized and rationed, um, not only certain access to care, but opportunities for communication that matter most for patients and family members. And I imagine that once things finally calm down with the pandemic and, you know, hospitals get a chance to sort of breathe and, and maybe review their policies, that uh, some of these policies may change in terms of communication and sort of how they do it and, you know, how they go about it. And may, it maybe it's situational, but uh, I imagine there would be a lot of that work done some point down the road. Jay, I, I think that this is going to be really one of the areas that opens up and needs to open up much more widely. Um, this is a, one of the key questions you asked is, 
you know, what do we need to improve? And um, realizing that there is no effective and safe care, nor is there caring without communications is essential. I think one of the untapped resources in many cases may be the patient and family advisors or those who sit on patient and family advisory committees um, and bringing them into the process of helping us reshape and reimagine um, what optimal communications, effective communications look like um, as this pandemic continues. This is not going away in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. We are going to be impacted forever in not only our care, but our communications as a result of the pandemic. Um, so and really hearing from patients and families and reaching out to them to understand their experience overall, I think is really going to be vital for helping us improve how we can effectively communicate during uh, the COVID era. I also think one of the things that uh, you know we may have alluded to a little bit um, are shift huddles, which are wonderful opportunities for um, you know just evaluating test of change uh, with communications with real-time PDSAs. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that predicting the future uh, is going to reveal vast opportunities to explore how we can refine tools that are currently used to assess patient and family satisfaction and their experience and their engagement. So for example, if you or I were to be um, discharged from a hospital or we had a visit with one of our providers, you know that in the mail, we would receive right. a survey um, and we are asked to complete that survey. And I've had some interesting conversations with folks over the last few weeks about what are the right types of questions to ask? Well, how do we have to adapt those questions in light of the fact that our care models are very, very different? Uh, for example, what are the kinds of questions we might need to ask about televisits of some kind? They're very, very different. They can be very different from an inpatient, um, excuse me, a, an in-person uh, visit with a healthcare provider. And I also think we'll see our communications be shaped, Jay, by understanding how this pandemic is affecting the psychological and the emotional status um, and the consequent but unintended harm on patients. We've been studying this, as you know, over recent years, and uh, we're realizing that there is substantial impact. Uh, and uh, the pandemic, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, but fortunately, is directing us toward more extensive and purposeful avenues to better understand the short and longer term trajectory of communications and the impact on the patient experience and their psychological and emotional status, which is so important to safe and quality care. Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for uh, joining me and uh, some great insight uh, on the topic. And um, let's uh, stay safe through this thing. <laughs> thank you, Jay. Let's stay safe. And uh, let's keep raising the important questions that you asked today and gathering perspective from others. Um, aside from me, uh, where we're going to be seeing and learning from such diverse 
lenses and also uh, diverse experiences um, that we have, uh, both as healthcare delivery organizations that are shaping and providing communications, as well as patients and family members. So they are at the epicenter um, of care, caring, and communications. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And that wraps up episode two of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope to join me in two weeks when I'll be back with a new episode.